Well, Jordan, uh, welcome uh, to the Best Business Minds. I'm excited to uh, talk about your book that's right behind you. And so let's get started by telling us a little bit about your background. Well, I uh, grew up in a New York City housing project. By the way, pleasure to be here, Mark. I <laughs> uh, grew up in a uh, New York City housing project that was built for returning war veterans. And so, you know, really among working class people, very straight communication. And I grew up in a family that was loud by New York standards. So I really developed a very direct communication style. My first uh, occupation was really as the therapist. And then I kind of shifted into leadership and management. And part of, the, part of what happened to me was I, I always got feedback that I was abrasive. And that had to do with my directness. And then later on, I became the chief operations officer of a healthcare company, which we sold from grew from four employees to 65 and sold to a large insurance company. And then I got fired. And I wasn't bright enough to realize that my style, which worked in a fast growing org uh, entrepreneurial company would not work in an insurance company. And so I got some feedback about my style and I realized that I needed to change. And so since then uh, I have become a master corporate executive coach, and I work with similar executives with similar issues. So I, I can relate to that issue, Jordan, because I'm very direct as well. And sometimes I can be abrasive, but I think it rarely ever happens. Uh, why did you write this book? Well, about three years ago, I, I don't know about you, but I'm getting old. And, <laughs> about three, and about three years ago, I realized that, you know, I'm sort of hitting a new life stage and what do I want to do? And there was a big part of me that feels like the conversation in leadership these days about abrasiveness is somewhat slanted. Um, so I have a, a, a different perspective. One is that a lot of executives who get called abrasive, bully, whatever, really don't want to hurt people. It's really their, partly their culture. They come from loud cultures and partly they're just so driven to be successful that uh, they get frustrated and defensive when people don't perform. And we have all of these people who uh, refer to them by names like bully, jerk, and a few body parts. And uh, it, it really sort of annoyed me. I thought it was hypocritical. So I really wrote the book to change the conversation about what abrasiveness is. And let me be clear, there's no uh, it's not okay to be disrespectful and bullying and all of that stuff, but there, there is a conversation that needs to happen about what's happening in our society. So it was really about that. How do you define abrasive? Well, abrasive is partly culturally defined. So uh, I have a business partner who grew up in a, uh, his mother is Mexican, his father was Dutch. And they yelled a lot, like my family. We get on the phone and uh, my wife would listen to us and say, you know, I keep thinking you're gonna you know, quit the partnership. And somehow by the end, you guys are, you know, made up and you're thanking each other for the input. And so there's a piece of that. I, you know, my response to that is, no, nah, no, nah, we were just talking. So there's a piece of that. But there's also, let's take it a little further, using profanity, uh, uh, defaming people in public, 
uh, embarrassing them, all of that kind of stuff. And whether it gets experienced as abrasive or not is really partly in the mind of the perceiver and the culture of the organization. So uh, in the book, it says uh, that there are four types of bullshit leaders, no bullshit leaders. And I love the yes. title. Thank what you. Are the, what are the four types? Well, the first type is the warrior. And the warrior is the master. The warrior is completely focused on results. And periodic, very rarely are they disrespectful. It's, it's usually about whatever your behavior or performance was. And they have very, very high expectations. The second group I call the scientists. And those are people who are very analytic Typically, they're introverted, which means that they don't have a lot of energy for interpersonal relationships. They may only have one or two close relationships in their life. And as they're walking down the hall, they don't see why they should waste time saying good morning to everyone. And those folks are often experienced as not available. And if the people who are around them have shaky self-esteem, they're experienced as disrespectful as well. The third group is probably the group I fell in. I call them the abrasive executive. And those are people for the most part who don't want to hurt people, but whose self-esteem is attached to success. So when the people around them don't perform, they feel personally attacked and they may strike out, but it's really, you know, it sounds like they're attacking people, but it's really a defensive response. And then the fourth group I refer to as bully. It's a very small group. The uh, estimate of what percentage of people in the general population are about one to 2%. My executive coaching people think that it's probably more like 10 to 15% in the executive suite. And they just enjoy hurting people or they just don't care. It, it's about them, et cetera. So those, that would be the four kinds. So it, it is, it, I thought this was all very interesting. I like the research that you've done. Is one better suited for long-term success? Well, certainly the warrior uh, is the one that's better suited for long-term success and is less likely to get into difficulty in our current work environment. Uh, if the warrior gets complaints, often an independent third party investigates and finds out that the employer, the warrior did nothing that required the complaint. It's really the person who received it who needs to improve their performance. Uh, both the scientist and the abrasive executive tend to be successful up until a certain point. And Marshall Goldsmith, one of my favorite authors, wrote a book called What Got You Here Won't Get You There. So their, their drive, their, uh, the way that they go about things, and for the scientist, it's their analytic style. When they're working on projects and they're working on getting stuff out, um, their style tends to be tolerated. But when they get higher and it's more about relationship, they run into difficulty. My experience is that most of those people, if they get a good reason to change, uh, certainly the abrasive executive often feels like the reason that they're getting pressure to change is that we live in an overly protective, overly politically correct, overly polite society and that this is all a bunch of political bull. And they have to figure out that there's an authentic reason for them to change. And my experience is most of the time that they do. So has the younger generation, especially, you know, I'm 59, my kids are gonna be 30 and 27. 
on their generation, everybody gets a trophy, everybody's made to feel good, uh, everyone is asked about their feelings and so forth. H has that uh, culture, uh, that demographic become soft or do we need to be, as leaders, much more attuned to how they're feeling about things? Uh, and that would actually maybe even improve their skill set and performance. Well, not, not even just because of, of millennials and younger generation. Uh, I think uh, that executives, uh, particularly CEOs, have been uh, told that their job is to make uh, money for the shareholders, profit for the shareholders. And there has not been an emphasis until the last few years on developing relationship with the people who work for you and with, uh, and, and certainly with customers and the, and the society in general. So I think in general, we need to get more aware of that. Are we overly protective? My gut tells me yes. Uh, but also, Part of what goes on with the younger generation is that they need to have motivation. They need to be part of something that they want to be part of. And our generation was raised, just do your work. It doesn't matter whether it means anything for you. So I think that's a shift in the positive direction. Uh, can you give three good examples of no bullshit leaders and what makes them special? You know, people yeah, so, today. yeah, just so uh, one of them, uh, given what's going on today, one of my heroes is Martin Luther King. And he was totally focused on the, on, on the uh, goal. There was no giving up. He was never out of the fight. Or if, even if you look at, uh, I'm blocking on his first name, uh, Senator, uh, Senator Lucas or Congressman Lucas, who just passed. Oh, John Lewis. John Lewis. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, you know, th that would be an example of a warrior, uh, of, a, of a no bullshit executive. So um, another example to me would be Margaret Thatcher or perhaps Ruth Bader Ginsburg or a number of other folks. So they're out there. Okay. Uh, is this something learned or are you born with it? I think my understanding is it's partly genetic. And because it has to do with, are you introverted, extroverted? Uh, uh, are you uh, uh, highly planful versus are you whatever comes? All of that stuff impacts how you react to things. And it's also partly your family culture and the culture that you come from. So I think it's a combination of learned and probably genetic. Uh, I've been re watching a lot of documentaries uh, since COVID started. Yes. And I think sports is something that we all relate to because it, it's out front. And uh, lots of people like myself watch the Michael Jordan documentary. Yes. And uh, I watched one on Kobe Bryant and watched one on Bill Belichick. And these guys are definitely fit in, I guess, the warrior no bullshit mode. But at the same time, they needed to have somebody balance them out. As Michael Jordan said, without Scottie Pippen, there are no six championships. And I think Scottie Pippen balanced him out. Is it important if you're a no bullshit leader to find uh, somebody's kind of the opposite? You've driven hard like you are, but a little bit softer side? Well, yes. And... Let me answer that question in two ways. One way is it's never just about the leader. One person cannot drive. You have to be able to, to develop a team 
or even an organization that is committed to you as a person. So part of that is, do they see you as somebody that they like? Is Do they see you as somebody that they trust? And trust is very big. And ultimately, do they believe you? Are you credible? And so, you know, I, I did watch that uh, Michael Jordan series, and clearly he had a mixed reaction from people about liking him, but he was very, very strong in trust and credibility. And so uh, it is important that the larger the organization gets, the more the leader has to focus on culture and on commitment and mission than uh, just getting things done and telling people what to do. I, I, I really enjoyed the Michael Jordan documentary and did not like him before the documentary and liked him more after the documentary uh, uh, because I could see that he was driven for success and he felt like if I don't really push these people to limit, they won't be ready uh, in the playoffs. Right. And I know I've got other people like Bill Cartwright and Scottie Pippen, other people around me who will balance out uh, how harsh I can be on them because if all of us are harsh like this, right. It probably is not going to go work out very well. And I think Steve Jobs had Steve Wozniak and Tim Cook, and that helped him. And I'm sure yes. most all of these guys have somebody internally. I taught at Wharton for 10 years, and I had some, a uh, couple of my students work for Ben Stiller and said it was a nightmare working for him, but his chief operating officer was such a good guy that he was the approachable one. That Ben Stiller would walk in, not even talk to him, look at him as if they were furniture. So it was kind of interesting. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I, I have a uh, colleague who uh, is a therapist, psychologist, who talks about that those kind of executives need to have somebody to delegate empathy to. Yeah, right, right. Uh, you write in your book, is, uh, is this, uh, in the book you write, what do you mean by the least you can do? What do, what do you mean by that? Well, the word has a double meaning. So the book is written to executives who get pushed to be more polite, politically correct, all of that. And I was essentially writing to people who had the same conversation in, in their head that I had when I was getting that pressure. So one of the meanings of the least you can do is literally the least you can do. So one of the things I say to them is, look, if you think that changing your style so that people aren't offended by you is just political garbage, then I want to show you the least you can do to protect yourselves in our politically correct environment. But there's also another meaning to the least you can do, which is it's the right thing to do. So in the book, I mentioned that if somebody who has a disability asks you to help them across the street and you get them to the other side uh, and then they offer to pay you, you would say, of course not. That was the least I could do. So part of what I'm saying to the people I'm talking to in the book is that if I do my job with you, you will decide that it's the least you can do in the sense that it's the right thing to do to change your style, even though you're annoyed as hell by the demand to be more politically correct, more polite, more protective, all of that. I think some of those people don't even realize they're being impolite. You know, they just feel that that direct conversation is something that would be really of value to people and not realize that sometimes they've gone too far. Yeah, you're completely correct about that. And there are a couple of reasons for it. One is that particularly if they're fairly senior, people don't want to tell them. So the reports are not going to tell them you're offensive. And 
sometimes the HR people or even their executives are a bit conflict avoidant. Uh, in addition, they're very valuable people, and there's concern that if we tell them that they're obnoxious and need to change, we might lose them. They might get angry. And so, and on top of that, they, they, they come from cultures where that kind of talk is just normal and they just think they're talking. So there's a number of reasons why they don't get it. I usually do uh, anonymous uh, interviews with their reports, with their peers and feed that back to them. And almost 100% of the time they are shocked when they hear the impact that they're having on people. And those interviews are so valuable. I do the same thing with my clients too. Uh -huh. And I had a CEO of a hundred person company and he was shocked to hear all his direct reports said that they had to check his temperature before they told him anything. Right. And he thought he's calm and steady every day. And they said, no, you're highly emotionally driven. Yeah. So, um, we didn't know, you know, we had to see if you're in a good mood or not. Um, you say uh, having a purpose is a key to getting over adversity. Talk about that. Well, and, and I really say that in the sense of the people who are around them. So one of my, I'm, I'm going to make an, a very extreme example. One of my favorite books is by Viktor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning. Viktor Frankl was a psychiatrist who had been in a uh, German uh, concentration camp. And his book was really in a lot of ways about what is it that pe what helps people survive something like that? And part of it was, part of it was purpose. Oops, excuse me, I turned this down. Part of it is purpose. Uh, so there was an example that he gave of uh, a man who had lost his wife in the concentration camp. And he came and he was depressed and he was miserable and suffering and um, he said to Dr. Frankel, something along the lines of, you know, you know, what is life worth? Why, why am I doing this? And Dr. Frankel said to him, you know, how would your wife have handled being alone the way you are? And he said, well, that she would have been even worse. It would have been really horrible for her. And so he said something along the lines of, you know, so what you are doing is, uh, is really protecting your wife from having to deal with that. So that's a very extreme example in terms of people who are legitimately, I'm gonna turn that off, I just couldn't do it, uh, who are legitimately getting um, uh, uh, abused in the workplace. One of the questions is, what do you have to learn? What's the opportunity? And often they are conflict avoidant or their self-esteem is attached to uh, to whether or not people are talking to them nicely. And so they have to focus on having a purpose. Why, why, what is the purpose? What can they get out of it that's positive in this situation? Some of the things that we see uh, in your book, you write about why do, why do some bullshit executives have esteem issues? Why do they have that? I think the president has that. Yeah, yeah. Well, everybody has esteem issues. I, I, there may be a half a percent of the population that, that doesn't. But uh, again, I think it goes back to how do you deal with it? And it's partly culture and it's partly how to attack do you feel? So for people with an uncommon desire for success, an uncommon need for success, 
for meeting the for meeting the uh, accomplishing the mission. Let's say there are some people who are so committed to that that they just don't feel good about themselves unless it happens, and not feeling good about themselves means they have failed. So it may be also another possibility is that they had uh, parents who even were on the abusive side, and so they have some wounds. But it also could be people who were raised just with, it's not okay if you fail. You, you must succeed, and they don't feel good about themselves if that happens. Uh, why is it good to acknowledge your imperfections? I think it is a good idea. Well, I hate it myself. I don't know about you. <laughs> <laughs> well, certainly, if you acknowledge, a couple of levels. One is if you acknowledge your imperfections, other people are willing to acknowledge their imperfections. So one of the things that I do when I coach people, whether it's about abrasiveness or whatever, is, uh, again, uh, tipping my hat to Marshall Goldsmith, who invented something called feed forward, which is what this is, is to go to to go to your key stakeholders and say, you know, I've gotten some feedback that I need to speak up more, or I've gotten some feedback that I need to be better at listening to people or whatever it is. And then say, do you think I'm working on the right thing? And if the other pe person says yes, then you say, well, what do you want to see from me? What behavior would you want to see from me so that you would rate me as really, really doing well? And just doing that, they're, they're acting with humility, they're asking for the people who report to them or who are equal to them to be coaches. And they are a leader in the organization, so they're creating a new culture. So that's one of the reasons to admit that you have faults and imperfections and ask others, how can you deal with them better? The second reason is, is that if you don't do that, one, one of my coaches, uh, the best, one of the best pieces of advice I got as a leader was uh, my coach said to me at one point, look, there's one thing that you're gonna do or I'm gonna quit. And that is, before you tell anybody what they're gonna do, you ask them, why won't it work? And he said to me, you know, if you're gonna tell the, the jan janitor to change how the janitor picks up the garbage, the janitor gets to tell you why it won't work. You're gonna tell a receptionist to change how the receptionist answers the phone, receptionist gets to tell you why it won't work. And when I started to do that, first of all, I had been with him for about four months and he was very frustrated to me with me because I wasn't hearing. And it wasn't until he did that, until he took that tone of voice that I heard him. So by the way, that's another reason that abrasive executives sometimes don't get it because you haven't told, haven't told them so that they can hear it. And so I started doing it and it was amazing to me what the people who, around me knew in my, in my system that I didn't know. And uh, his name was uh, Louis Spain and I, his family, he, he liked me mentioning him. He passed away this year from cancer. So I'm tipping my hat to him, but boy, Louis just gave me one of the best pieces of, uh, pieces of advice ever. So those are the two reasons for admitting that you don't know everything. Uh, I have to say when one of uh, the companies I work with, I, um, the CEO was ready to fire the, um, the office manager who had once been the bookkeeper and she was just in the wrong position mm -hmm. and she'd been with him for 30 years. And I said, you're the one that made the mistake of moving her out of the position she was successful into a position that she was not suited for. And it's not fair to fire her. So I said to him, you need to apologize to her in front of everybody. And, yes. and uh, amazingly, he did it. 
And the women in his office started crying and it changed the whole dynamic with him, the whole relationship. Yeah, so admitting this powerful. is very, very powerful. What strategies uh, should you use to handle a bully boss? Well, there's managing yourself and then there's how do you relate to the boss? So in managing yourself, first of all, you've got to challenge your judgment of them. So most people, even I do, I mean, I am one of them and I have a tendency to use demeaning names when I refer to other people. So part of it is to develop compassion, which means uh, recognizing that just like you, the other person is an imperfect human being and that there, that there are good things underneath it. Uh, also to understand their wiring. So you need to figure out whether you've got one of that small group of people who enjoys causing pain and uh, just doesn't care about other people, or you've got one of those people who really doesn't want to hurt people, but is reacting defensively or react just talking out of their family and, and ethnic culture. So after you get that clear, uh, that's to figure out whether it's personal or not. The next piece is you have to look at your own self-esteem and determine whether or not you evaluate yourself based on whether other people are talking nicely to you. And the way I like to talk about it is, are you a target or are you a victim? And we tend to talk about people being victims of abuse or bullying or what have you. And the reality is that they're not, they're targets and how they react to it, very much going back to man's search for meaning. There were people in the concentration camps who uh, took care of other people when they were hurting. Everybody was in the same boat, but they took care of other people when they were hurting. The third thing is that I think that you need to know that you have choices so that you're not stuck. So it really is helpful to know that you can leave if you want to. And by the way, when I work with people around this, I'm not suggesting to them that they should leave because very often uh, there are very good reasons why they would want to stay uh, in terms of their long-term uh, benefits, et cetera. But they need to know that they, that they could leave. They need to be checking that out. And what happens when you know that you can leave, you're making a choice rather than you are forced to be here. And then finally, um, there's an approach that I use, partly comes from the Center for Creative Leadership, which is called Situation Behavior Impact. And it's partly mine, which is if you, if you frame things correctly, you can say almost anything to anyone. So if you mark are my boss and you're one of those people and you tell me to do something and I know it won't work, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to listen to you. And at a certain point, I'm going to say, Mark, I really want to represent you. So there are things you're saying I'm not quite getting. Is it okay if I ask you a bunch of questions? Now, I'm, the words are one down, one up. I'm here to serve you. But the tone of voice is equal. Now, let's say you fill me in. Usually you're going to tell me. And then I'm going to leave. I'm going to spend some time, maybe an hour, two hours. Then I'm going to come back and I'm going to say, Mark, I wouldn't be doing my job, and by the way, I'm, I'm using some extreme language here to, to be clear, but I wouldn't necessarily say it exactly this way. Mark, I wouldn't be doing my job serving you if I didn't let you know that 
there are some things that could happen that will not be winners for us if I do what you ask. Do you want to hear it? Again, tone of voice is equal, even one up. If you tell me no, I'm going to leave and go do it. Um, so basically, that very powerful communication from the one down, one up, the in-service to you position. Similar, uh, we had some communication before the, uh, the, the interview today about martial arts. It's similar to the soft martial arts versus the hard martial arts. We're going to talk about that. Uh, let me ask you, what do, what do you do for elite military operators? What do you work on with them? Yeah, so I want to say about five years ago, a friend of mine asked me if I had heard about the Honor Foundation. I had not. The Honor Foundation at the time was an organization that was a nonprofit organization that helped Navy SEALs transition from the Navy to uh, civilian life. They now have expanded and they serve all the special operators. And they have one of the most incredible programs I've seen for military transition. So I am, an, I am a volunteer executive coach for them. And that's only one third of the program. They have something like 60 hours of classroom. They take them on, well, certainly with COVID, it's not happening so much, but they take them on treks to meet people. They get interviews. But part of the job of the coach is number one, the first piece is what is your why? And they use Simon Sinek's model. And the reason they do that is that in the uh, special operations forces, there is no I, it's what we did. And you can't go into an interview and ask, what did you do? You can't go into a business interview and ask, what did you do? And say, well, we did this, uh, et cetera. They need, you, know, you need to be able to speak a different language. So a big piece of what I do with them is help them translate what they did into business language and into what did they do. Another piece is uh, practicing interviews and helping them with their uh, resumes and stuff like that. My skill is more in that first piece. And so we have a team, we call it Poacher Coach. So we have 100 coaches. Some of them are much better at writing resumes and at doing interviews and connecting. And so we, we pass them around to each other and uh, help them move that. My understanding was, and I can't remember the exact number, but when uh, Joe Musselman started the Honor Foundation, something like 18% of special operations people had jobs or planned for life when they left. Uh, several years later, they've had about 1,000, I think it's 900 uh, graduates, and their uh, rate is that people who are uh, graduates of that program, about 95% of them have made a decision about what they want to do with their life and are satisfied with it. So it's an incredible program. One of the questions we were asked by someone who is listening in is uh, they asked, uh, women get labeled uh, as a bitch and often yes. them redlined in their careers. Uh, can you please tell us how the things that you're talking about applies to women? Well, women have a special problem because uh, I believe in our society, and there's certainly lots of writing about this, that men can do something and it's okay, and women get, women get called names for the same behavior. Uh, it can be helpful for women sometimes, and I hesitate to say this, I have a number of different people that I know who work with women around how do you deal, how do you communicate in a heavily uh, male environment? And one of the recommendations was that 
that they use language like this, as opposed to that's my area and, and being territorial, which men can do and get away with, um, that they say things like, um, I will make that happen for you. And again, it has tone of voice uh, versus uh, words. Words are, the words are somewhat, I'm in service to you. Tone of voice is heavier. But I think, I think that's changing somewhat these days, but not enough. Tell us what is the warrior self-assessment and what, uh, and what may be the three most important parts of that are to be a great leader. So what I did for the warrior self-assessment is I took the Navy SEALs ethos and I abstracted about 15 items from it. And I basically ask in the book, how do you compare? So do you have an uncommon need for or, or desire for success. And there's some conversation around what that means, but most of the people who uh, uh, are warriors, who are no bullshit executives, the people around them, even high performers, wonder where they get the energy. Uh, a second category would be, do you step in, take charge and lead your team? Again, it, that can get you in trouble, uh, but that's, that's a tendency that they have. Do you always accomplish the mission? Are you never out of the fight? Those kinds of things. At the tail end of the ethos, though, are things like humbly serve, protect people who can't protect themselves, um, control your emotions regardless of circumstance, uh, those kinds of things. And those are the things that are typically missing. And part of the reason that I use the Navy SEALs ethos is because those are the most respected warriors on the planet. And so most of the people who write about abrasive executives tell them that they have to be nicer people, that they're not good people. And then you get into the argument, is this politically correct? Is it that, they, you know, why shouldn't I be able to talk like this? And I think it's number one, better and more uh, helpful to recognize that they're incredibly valuable, that we need their warrior spirit. And by the way, I'm going to challenge you to be even a better warrior because you're not as good a warrior as you could be. And so that is the nature of the assessment. You, you talked about special forces giving the leeway to make decisions as circumstances changed. Why and, why, and wasn't it always uh, being done that way? Yeah, so I... You know, by the way, one of the books I would recommend for your audience is uh, General McChrystal's, Stanley McChrystal's Team of Teams. And when he took over our uh, forces uh, after the Iraq War, uh, we were getting our butts kicked by Al-Qaeda. And part of the reason for that, and I, this is a hi highly uh, encapsulated description, Part of the reason for that was that we had a very top-down set of, uh, set of uh, hierarchy. So if you set a group of SEALs in or a group of Marine Raiders or just Army folk, they were told, do this. When they got there, there was a large potential that Al-Qaeda had figured out something else to do. And they were not allowed to shift. They had to then report back and say, this is what's going on. And it often took two to three days or longer for them to get a response, by which time the information that they gave back was not even valuable. So General McChrystal 
started a process where he would have a phone call in the morning. And if I remember correctly, there was something like 7,000 people on the line from all countries, uh, from all of the branches of service, from government. And the first part of the conversation was, you know, what's going on that's critical? What do we need to deal with today? What's, what's the most urgent? After they decided that, and that might take 15 minutes or a half hour, everybody who wasn't part of that got off. But everybody heard it. Everybody knew what was going on all over the place and understood how everything was connected. So then they would decide, here's what we're going to do. And that would take another half hour to hour and a half or so. They went from um, the, the, what I remember was, they went from it took nine days to launch a new a plane to uh, 90 minutes, that in 90 minutes, they could actually come up with a plan and do something about it. And we got much more effective. And he talks about in his book that that really applies to business as well. If you've got people in a multinational organization who are all over the world and you're doing top-down strategy uh, and they, they can't make decisions, they are much more less likely to, you're much less likely to be effective than if you give them permission to make the strategic decisions. However, you can't go on need to know. Everybody needs to know what's going on everywhere else so that they can actually make the strategic decisions. A good book to read is Startup Nation about uh, Israeli's entrepreneurial culture and then their military. The lieutenants make all the decisions and they're supported by the generals. So, uh-huh. they get, so they make the decisions upon impact, which has driven their entrepreneurial culture. It's a great book to go read. Uh, yes. You mentioned, uh, uh, please talk about agile and lean methodologies for managing projects and people. Yes. Yeah, so I, I got introduced to, to lean, it was called continuous process improvement back then by Louis Spain, who, who, as I mentioned, was my coach. And the assumption is that most of what goes wrong in organizations is caused by problems in the system rather than people. So here I am at the top of the organization and stuff is not working and I'm getting irritated with people. Why didn't you figure it out, et cetera, et cetera. And I met Louis, he was dating a a friend of mine and we started to talk and I just got fascinated about the whole thing. So he had me read a book called The Goal by Eli Goldratt. And I actually hate reading. I'm a little bit ADHD when it comes to reading. And I decided I'd read a chapter one Sunday night. Uh, Started at 10 o'clock at night, I'd read a chapter. And six in the morning, I finished the book and called up my boss, uh, the owner of the company, and said, you know, Nick, I'm not coming in this morning because I was up reading all night. But trust me, I did a whole lot more for you than I might have done otherwise. Nick read the book. We decided to hire Louie. So to give you a feel for how it worked and what he did, one of the things he he did was he had our staff and it was at all levels uh, uh, graph out the processes. And it started with, we we were a healthcare company, we're doing employee assistance programs. So it started with the, the phone rings, that was step one. Number two, the receptionist picks up the phone and it took them a good two months to, uh, to graph flowchart, all of the uh, steps all the way to the end. And so one day the uh, uh, medical records person, Lynn, who was another tough cookie like me, comes in with her arms folded and she says, I want you to come into the, in, into the uh, conference room. I have something to show you. And 
trust me, I did not want to go, but I went. And she started with the phone rings and started taking me around. And uh, we get to a certain point and she says, and then I do this. I said, well, why do you do that? And she says, because you told me to do that. I told you to do that. I would never tell you to do that. And she said, you don't, don't you remember that situation where the clinician had died and we didn't have the clinician's closing notes and we worked out a way about how we were going to close the case and all of that. And I said, yeah, but Lynn, that was a workaround. I didn't want you to do that with everybody. And she said, well, you didn't say that. And the, the abrasive person in me was ready to say, what are you, an idiot? But I, by that time, Louis had beat me over the head enough that that's not okay. And what I said was, you're absolutely right. It was my job to make sure that, the, that, the, uh, that everyone understood what the process is. So that's a sense of lean, is understanding that everybody knows the process, that, you need to pro that most of it is coming from the process. You need to be able to delegate down uh, permission to change the process when it needs to be changed. Well, too bad you didn't meet Matt Butler, one of our sponsors, because he and I'm, I'm going to have Matt do a seminar for us on exactly what you just spoke about just now. Matt's a genius at mapping out these kinds of problems and figuring out a great process and a solution for it. Yes. Um, <laughs> please explain the concepts of uh, hard and soft power with examples of how they work. Yeah, so the, the term comes from and I know you've got the name there. I'm, I have a tendency when I'm in the middle of interviews to block on names. It was Joseph Nair or something like that, uh, who, was, who wrote a book on um, international politics. And it was really about the idea that hard power, which is threatening other countries and you're going to do this, is not, at, well, at, there are times that you need to do that, but it's not as effective all the time without soft power. And soft power is more cooperative, nurturing, helpful, et cetera. So in the workplace, hard power is focus on goals, holding people accountable, drive for success, and improve efficiency, all of that stuff. The other end is empathy, uh, helping people, developing people, coaching, supporting, and all of that. And in my mind, in our leadership, uh, discussion today, I think we've kind of done a pendulum swing to the left towards soft power, that there's some conversation out there that you'll see that uh, everyone should feel accepted and um, respected and, and safe all the time. And I think actually, if you're on one side or the other of that, you're going to create some unintended negative consequences. So if you're only on the hard power, you're going to end up not hearing, as you said earlier, you're not going to hear from your people, they're gonna they're gonna know what's wrong, and they're not gonna tell you. If you're always if you're only over on the soft power, it's gonna be hard for you to uh, approach people who are not performing, and let them know that they're not performing, and perhaps even let people go when they need to be let go, or get them into the right positions. And what happens if you do too much soft power is that your high performers start getting um, annoyed with you, and dispirited. If you do too much hard power the same thing happens. People start feeling disrespected and, and sometimes you get sabotaged. So it, it's being able to balance those two things out. Very hard for some people to do, hence why they need others around them to balance that out. And watching the Michael Jordan documentary made that obvious. Yes. Uh, and 
Yeah, one of the things I thought was very interesting, I guess uh, General McChrystal uh, read about this earlier and, and helped form his own thinking, which was, could you please talk about the HEN experiment and what leaders can learn? Ah, yes, the HEN experiment, one of my favorites. So I attended a, uh, I, I am a licensed clinical social worker and I've, I don't do that anymore, but I keep my uh, license new. So I have to take 36 credits of uh, continuing it every two years. And I attended this uh, program, uh, uh, a, a training program for CEUs and the, and the trainer presented a case that he called the badass chickens. And what that was is a someone, uh, I think his name was William Muir, who was a uh, professor at Purdue, and he specialized in breeding, and he was trying to breed hens that laid more eggs. And so he had two conditions. One is he had hens, he put hens in, uh, I think there were nine in a cage or seven in a cage, and he put them in two separate groups. In one group, he identified the hens that laid the most eggs. And he took those hens out and then bred them and then uh, looked at who, you know, who, who in that group laid the most eggs. And he did that for like six generations. So six generations later, he had been taking out the highest producers in each group. Uh, in the other, he looked at which groups of hens laid the most eggs and then bred them. And so in the groups of hens, there tended to be a mixture of hens who laid a lot of eggs and hens that didn't. But for some reason or other, those groups laid more eggs. And six generations down, he, he showed some pictures of the hens. The hens who were the high layers, if you saw a picture of them, they, they were fighting with each other. They were pulling each other's feathers out. Their egg production dropped. Uh, and usually one hen was the bully. In, in the group, the, higher, the highest producing hen. And the other groups were just getting along just fine. So the, so the metaphor for me is really that uh, often people who are abrasive leaders or very driven leaders make the mistake of thinking that, er, that, we, that if everybody were like me, we would, get, we would have better production. And that's not true. You need people who do a variety of things. As you're saying, you need people who do the empathy and who do the connection and who are more analytic. If everybody were like you, you'd be in big trouble. You talked about an article in Inc. Magazine about the characteristics of a great team. What are they and does that hold true for all endeavors? Yeah, so um, I knew I wasn't gonna remember that, so I decided to uh, pull it out and write it down. Um, yeah, there, there were five things. One, one is uh, dependability. So it, it really has to do with what's the culture of the team. Uh, there was some Google research on what makes great teams. And ultimately, it's not about the people in the team in some way. You know, are they loud? Are they soft? It's really about how the team, it's really about the unspoken rules. And so um, number one was dependability. So if people say they're going to do something, they do it. So that's one of the keys that you have a culture in your team where that is true. The second thing is that everybody knows what the goals are and everybody knows what the structure is. I, I, it's amazing to me how many times I've worked with teams and asked, you know, in a group, what's the purpose of the team? And everybody has a different answer. And the team has been together for two, three years. Uh, the third thing is um, 
that they that they're that they care about each other that there's some meaning and so uh and that's connected with impact so it's meaning and impact so is there some reason impact is about is our work important uh very often in highly uh highly busy organizations people are said do this people are told do this or a team is told do this but they don't see the whole value chain and they don't understand how what they're doing helps the person who's closer to the the to the uh, external customer on the value chain they just don't get why they're doing why they're do what they're doing and so some of it just feels like rote and silly stuff to do and finally psychological safety which is the ability to be yourself and psychological safety really is one of the big things these days in um in the literature on on teams and effectiveness in general and that is is it safe for somebody to make a mistake is it safe to express an opinion is it safe to disagree with you etc so those oh, are the five uh and you can't get people to be honest with you if they're always afraid about making mistakes and exactly and they're not going to go to take smart uh smart chances yeah. Charles Darwin said the most important instinct for survival that you write in your book is sympathy. Why is that? So my understanding of what Darwin meant by sympathy is, as I've read it, and I, I have to admit going into this, I'm, I'm somewhat hesitant because I haven't read Darwin in real depth. Like most of what I got from is from a, uh, a PhD named Joel Barker, who was very famous back in the, about 10 years ago, 15 years ago in the leadership realm. And he talked about uh, Darwin uh, being, that it was attributed to Darwin that uh, this, the term survival of the fittest. And he said, you know, really Darwin didn't say that. Darwin said survival of the fit, which is a very different term. So many people who are abrasive and high achievers believe that, you know, it's survival of the fit that, you know, you should be able to handle it. And he points out, he pointed out, Joe Barker pointed out that um, Darwin did not mean who can kill other people, who's bigger than other people. Darwin, for instance, meant uh, that there are bugs that live on bears that have adapted to, it, it, he meant adaptation, the ability to adapt. And then he took it further and he talked about the fact that human beings would not survive if they didn't, and really I say empathy rather than sympathy is he was talking about parenting and how parents take care of children. So there would not have been new generations of, of people uh, without parents taking care of their children under very dangerous circumstances. So that is what he meant. And so in terms of uh, the workplace, one of the things, again, the Navy SEALs is to protect people who can't protect themselves and care enough about people that you're going to protect them. How does compassion help you be a strong leader? Well, let's define compassion. Uh, about five years ago, a friend of mine who was the uh, head of an employee assistance program for one of the big healthcare companies, who has also um, got about 25 years of training in, in Buddhist meditation, called me up one day and he said, you know, Stanford's doing this, uh, this program on, on uh, compassion cultivation, which is based on the Dalai Lama's teaching 
It's also based on some of the neuros, neuroscience research that we have on the brain. And I'm one of the first people who's been certified in it. Would you like to come in and, you know, I'm, I'm, doing, a, I'm doing a pilot run. And I was sort of like, is this, a, is this a trick question? So I thought I would show up and um, hear a few things. I'm a, you know, I'm a therapist. I've been doing this stuff for years. I'm a, I'm a leader, got lots of training. I thought I would learn a few new techniques changed my life, not completely, but made a a very big difference. So the definition of compassion is um, recognizing that someone else is in pain, which is empathy, in pain or suffering, and at the same time having an urge to do something to alleviate that suffering. So I want to be really clear, compassion does not mean letting people off the hook. It doesn't mean treating them like children but it means recognizing that they are human beings who are suffering and who are imperfect, just like you. And then there are three levels to uh, what is a compassionate response. The first is the commitment that no matter what, no matter what my brain is telling me, that, and, and a lot of times we have this conversation in our head that, you know, you don't deserve respect. You didn't do your work, you know, whatever it is. You're not telling the truth. You don't deserve respect is to cultivate respect for people that it's difficult for us to have respect for. So that's the commitment. The next thing is what are the words? And the last thing is actually feeling uh, compassion and, and, and connection with people. Of the three, the commitment is the most important. So what I have found for myself is that there are times I, I made the commitment to do it, and there are times I'm in the middle of something and uh, my mind, my brain is telling me, call him an idiot. And, but no, I have made that commitment. And when I, when I do go over the line, I practice it. So what could I have said differently? So I build new neural pathways in my brain to help me the next time. Sort of like, like athletics, the more you practice, the better you get at it. I got two more questions for you. Uh, how can, how do you make sure you don't disrespect someone you don't have respect for? I thought that was interesting. Yeah. Well, again, it goes back to commitment. So if, if I have the time, if I'm not caught uh, in the moment and I have somebody that I'm angry at and I'm having a lot of conversation in my head about, one of the things I do is call up one of my partners or somebody that I trust and I run it out and you, what I do is I, it has to be completely confidential and it has to be completely safe where I can tell them exactly what's going on in my mind in the most politically incorrect way possible. And as I get all of that stuff out, then I go down to my core and I try to figure out what is it in me that's gotten so offended? What is it about this that I'm so offended by? And usually there's gold under there. So if you try to be too polite up front, you never understand what you're really, you know, what's really pushing you. And so once I do that, um, I, I realize I can reframe it in a more positive way. You know, it's really about commitment. It's really about respect. It's really about integrity. And, um, and then I work on how am I going to say it? And if I practice it three or four times, I'm usually a lot better. So the part of the idea is that you never get rid of that conversation in your brain that's saying, call him an idiot, but it's up here. You're up here and you're looking down and saying, thank you for sharing. I've, I've chosen to go another direction. 
Yeah, and it's tough to be authentic doing that as well as opposed to being also patronizing. When you yes. Do that. Well, if your commitment to treat people with compassion is authentic, then it is authentic. So for me, I realized that it was no longer okay for me, you know, that people deserved respect regardless of whether I thought they deserved respect because they were human beings. And once I made that commitment, my brain's conversation turned out to be wrong, is now wrong. It's like, I know brain, you're trying to be helpful, um, but I've made another decision. So that, that makes it authentic for me. Uh, my last question for you is, can bad impressions be turned around? And if so, how's it done? Yeah, so great question. Uh, I, I can tell you in the, there are two ways. One is with an apology. And it's not just, I'm sorry. Um, in my book, I have a seven step apology. Again, I can never remember all the steps exactly, but okay. it's, the key of it is, is being able to say, you know, I recognize that I did this. I recognize that I hurt you in this way. I am making a commitment to change. This is what I'm going to do so that you're, so that you're doing it. It's more than just, I'm sorry. Uh, the other way is if you are an executive and you recognize that you have been seen as overly abrasive, or on the other hand, if you're an executive and you've been seen as conflict avoidant, either or, you do the feed forward process. You acknowledge, you acknowledge it, you go to your stakeholders and say, you know, I, I know that I have been experienced as abrasive or passive aggressive or whatever, and my goal is to change. What do you think I need to do? And that it, usually you need an outside person to help you because it's hard to change your brain's neural pathways by yourself. But that would be the, the, the pinch is, is admit it, get, get internal market research about what they need to hear from you, acknowledge it, and work on it. Uh, Jordan, you, uh, I, you are worth the wait. Uh, and we're glad we had you on today. And your book was fantastic to read. I think people who pick it up and start reading will go through what you did, which is sit through it and read it throughout the night. And uh, we wish you luck with uh, the sales of this book. And we hope you'll write something else and we'll have you back again. Thank you so much. It's been a real honor to be on the show. And my apology for being late. Not a problem. Enjoy the rest of your day. Everybody have a great weekend. And uh, thank you so much for coming today. Take care.